What I want to touch on this morning is the whole subject of the church, because I think an increasing number of people these days say they believe in God, but don't really take the church all that seriously. Let's face it, most people simply don't have time for the church. It wasn't all that long ago. I mean, when I was growing up, which wasn't all that long ago, Sundays meant church followed by a day of rest. But in our 24-7 world, Sunday's now pretty much just another weekday. Shops are open, our kids' sports teams are in full swing. For some, Sunday's even another work day. For others, Sunday's really the only day there is in the week to have a lie-in, to catch up with the chores that they're doing around the house. With so much going on, church has become a much, much lower priority for many people. There are others who feel they've got plenty of time for the church, they just don't want to go. I mean, the church makes them angry because it's full of hypocrites. I mean, who wants to hang out with a bunch of people who claim to believe in something, but then live completely differently the rest of the week? And even if they can get past all of those issues, lots of people steer clear because church is irrelevant to their everyday lives. They maybe tried church before and it didn't make a whole lot of difference, so why bother? Or maybe they want to be part of a church, but whenever they go along, they end up feeling guiltier than they did before. The preacher's always telling them that they're not good enough and they need to try harder. Everyone else looks so perfect, it leaves them feeling worse about themselves. And then I guess there's another group of people who know just what church should be like, but Their ideals are so incredibly high that no church could possibly ever meet those standards. It's like they have detailed lists of what's wrong with every other church in town. The worship isn't spirit-led enough, or it's too loud, or too soft, or too whatever. The, The sermons are too shallow, or too intellectual. The evangelism isn't aggressive enough, or it's all the church ever talks about. There are far too many kids running around making a noise, or there's not enough of a family focus. At the end of the day, whatever the church is filled with mere mortals, and so it can never really measure up. And who needs the church anyway? Surely we can get all the Christian input that we need from websites and podcasts and books and conferences and the God Channel on TV. Now, I suppose it makes some sense that non-Christians don't think a whole lot about the church, but nowadays, even for many Christians, the question isn't so much, which church should I be a part of? It's more a case of, why should I even bother with church at all? I think part of the problem is a lot of Christians think of church merely as a place. It's a building, it's a destination, it's a meeting. We go to church. And the problem with this is that it gives us very much a consumer mindset. I'm looking for a church that meets my needs. I need a good church that will help me. Whereas the church is actually God's chosen vehicle for meeting the needs of others, which certainly includes me, but it's certainly not all about me. Remember the occasion when an expert in the Hebrew law approached Jesus and asked him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Jesus' response, 
Effectively, first of all, you need to love God. Second, you need to love other people as much as you love yourself. And if you can just do those two things, that'll pretty much fulfill every other law. You know, the church is the perfect environment to live this out. Being a part of the church allows you to do both of these things. It's where we can give ourselves to God by giving ourselves to others. And that is very much the Apostle Paul's point in the passage that I want us to focus on for the rest of my time with you today. If you've got a Bible with you, perhaps you could turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just to explain, Paul is writing this letter to untangle the many moral and theological knots that the church in Corinth had managed to get itself into. And in the chapter that we're going to be homing in on today, Paul is trying to help the church see what the church is really supposed to be like. And he does it with reference to the human body. In 15 verses, Paul mentions the body 17 times. It's like, this is a picture, this is an analogy he really desperately wants us to get a hold of. Let's read what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. This is what it means to be the church. We are all part of the body. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we have been made one. We're joined with one another. There's phenomenal unity. But at the same time, this unity, this oneness, doesn't mean uniformity. There's tremendous variety within the body. We are all different. I mean, just have a look around. A whole range of different people here today. And we all have different parts to play. Each one of us is incredibly important. In fact, without our contribution, the the rest of the body would be weaker in some way. God gives unique gifts for each of us to use for the building up, the strengthening, the encouragement of the whole church. So, if you don't use the gifts that God has uniquely given to you, the rest of the church is going to suffer in some way. And if others in the church don't use their gifts, then you're going to suffer. That's the way God has set it up. That's God's design for the church. We are interdependent. We desperately need one another. But Paul here takes this a stage further. Before unpacking really what this diversity looks like in practice, he throws race and culture into the whole mix. Verse 13, he says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether racially or culturally, whether slave or free, whatever our class, whatever our background. And he says, We were all given the one Spirit to drink. You see, Paul is not just talking here about the church being made up of people with a variety of different gifts. 
He's talking about something much, much wider than this, something much more radical than that. He's talking about a body of people that's diverse, that's different, not only in terms of the gifts they have, but also different, also diverse racially, culturally, and socially. And so as we read on, I want you to hold this idea in your mind. I want you to hear these verses in that context because we're so used to thinking of them in terms of the variety of spiritual gifts that there are in the church. And that's certainly part of what Paul is talking about here, but there is another lens we need to read these verses through. We need to keep race and culture and class in our minds as well. Verse 14, Paul says, now the body is not made up of one part but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are, are, are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. What do you reckon? It's powerful, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine a church where absolutely everyone is welcome, whatever their background? A church where everyone is valued, whatever their contribution? A church where everyone is honoured, whatever their race? A church where absolutely everybody is accepted, whatever their age their sex, their education, their appearance, or their social skills. That's God's design for the church. And in case you're wondering, that is the kind of church that we are trying to build here. But sadly, down through history, through every generation, there are always these common ailments in the body that can keep this from happening the way that God intends for it to happen. Paul deals with one of these ailments in verses 14 to 20 here that we've just read. He deals with the second one in the second half of this passage in verses 21 to 27. I want us to look at these two ailments in the rest of our time. The first one is feeling like you just don't belong. I'm talking here to to those of you who perhaps feel ever so slightly on the fringes. Those of you who feel like you just don't really fit in. 
Those who feel like you don't have much to offer, those who look around and think, well, let's be honest, you really don't need me here. Maybe you compare yourself with others and you're left feeling useless. So when I spoke earlier about everyone, each person in this room having a unique gift from God to use for the strengthening of the church, rather than encouraging you, maybe that left you feeling like more of a failure. You not only don't think you've got anything to contribute, but you now also feel guilty for not contributing anything. I mean, thank you very much. In fact, perhaps some of you very nearly didn't come today because you felt worthless, like no one would even notice if you stayed at home. Perhaps you fit in a minority here. Might be because of your skin colour, or your accent, or your upbringing, or your education, or the fact that everyone else looks like they've got it all together, and, and you know for sure that you haven't. Look around, and everyone else seems so different to you. You feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. You, you, you don't fit in, and it's not a comfortable feeling. That is exactly what Paul is referring to here in verses 15 and 16. It's like your foot looking at your hand and saying, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Or it's like your ear saying, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. I mean, that's exactly how some of you feel, because you're different. You, you feel like you don't belong. You're not as worthy as other members. That's the ailment that Paul is talking about here. That's the first thing that threatens the health of the body. And so, having diagnosed this problem, what does Paul prescribe? Well, his remedy is very simple. It's like he injects us with three truths. And I know the thought of injections, it sends some of you a bit squeamish, but I want to inject you with these three truths so that we can try and cure this problem once and for all. First of all, regardless of how you feel, the truth of the matter is you do belong. You do belong. This is what Paul says in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. Now, I know it's a pretty surreal argument, but it does make the point. Just because the foot can't do what a hand can do, doesn't mean it has no part or no place in the body. So you might compare yourself with someone else and conclude that, well, you're not as good as them, you're useless compared with them, but according to Paul here, your, your logic, your conclusion is just plain wrong. You are not useless, you just have a different use. Now, in case you didn't quite get the point first time round, Paul comes up with another slightly bizarre scenario. Verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. Now, if Paul is allowed to repeat himself, then that gives me permission to repeat myself as well. It is so important you get this message. You may think you don't belong. You may feel like you don't belong, but it is just not true. You can argue all you like but it doesn't make any difference to the reality from God's perspective. The reality is you are not useless. You do have a very valuable role to play. In fact, the body would be weaker without you. 
And it's a lie to say that just because you might feel different to everyone else, you don't belong. You do belong. It's the first injection of truth. Here comes the second one. By definition, the body needs to be diverse. Verse 14, Paul says, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. That's what it means to be a body. It's got to be made up of different parts, or there wouldn't be a body. It's a simple fact. The body would not exist if there wasn't any diversity. Verse 19, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I think there's a whole lot of repetition going on here because Paul desperately doesn't want any of us to miss the point. He knows what we're like. It's very simple teaching, but there's still something in most of us that struggles to accept it. I don't know, maybe you're sitting there, you're still refusing to believe what you're hearing. It's like those feelings of uselessness, those feelings of not belonging, they, they run so incredibly deep. They're, they're deep layers that are built up over the years. You, you can see the logic of what Paul's saying here, but you're still struggling to believe it could ever apply to you. It's like you're the exception to the rule. Your differences are too big. They're just too insurmountable. So Paul has one further go at driving the message home. He gives us a third injection of truth. His point is, thirdly, at the end of the day, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Paul continues with the whole body analogy in verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear where would the sense of smell be? You're getting the message. Variety, our differences, absolutely essential. Without differences, without diversity, the body wouldn't function properly. Without you, the church would be a little more one-dimensional. It would be a little more bland. It would lack the variety, the diversity, the richness that God intends for the church. Now, might be sitting there thinking, well, hold on a moment. I, I didn't actually say any of this. I didn't actually say I wanted the whole body to be an eye. I mean, you're just being a little bit extreme here. And I didn't say I wanted the whole body to be an ear. It's, it's just, I don't like being what I am. I, I just like to be something different. That, that's all. Which I guess is fair enough. Until you hear what Paul says in verse 18. But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. It was God's design. It was God's plan. It was God who wired you the way that you're wired and set you in this church to play the unique part that only you can play. Really, there's no arguing with that. Bottom line is that, that God is sovereign. He, he's designed all the parts of the body. He knows what's best. He knows the best fit for us. So, if we keep on thinking that, no, I'm useless or I don't belong, we're, we're not only saying no to the whole idea of the body, but worse, we're potentially saying no to God himself. 
We're saying we don't trust him. We're saying we know better than him. What, what we want is more important than what he wants. And so, Paul's remedy for these feelings of not belonging in the body, first of all, is to say is that they're feelings or opinions that don't stack up with God's reality. They're, they're out of sync with how God sees things. That the truth, according to God, is that really you do belong. Second, to think that you should be like others in the body rather than having a unique function of your own really goes against the very idea of a body that by definition has to be made up of many different parts. And third, and perhaps most important of all, resenting the fact that you are different from others in the body is effectively saying you don't trust God, you don't trust the way that He has made you and set the whole thing up. Since verse 18 says he has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If you say you don't belong or you have no part to play, you're making out that God's weak or he's mistaken, possibly even evil. He's not sovereign, he's not in control, he's not wise, he's not good. Really, like all issues, in the end it comes down to a radically God-focused question. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? I'd humbly suggest you can. That's the cure for the first ailment which threatens the health of the church. Very quickly, I want to turn our attention to the second ailment that Paul diagnoses here. The second ailment is feeling self-sufficient. When members of the body feel they don't belong, they say, you don't need me. When they feel self-sufficient, they say, I don't need you. And such attitudes fuel the first ailment. There can be a bunch of people feeling insecure, feeling like they don't belong, feeling like they're not wanted, feeling that they're too different, have no part to play. And it's people who are self-sufficient, who say, I don't need you, who model that with their behavior, their attitudes that fuels that first ailment. So we need to see both together. If we get both right, if we cure both, then the church does become a much more healthy body. Verse 21, Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Paul's warning us here. He's warning us that we need to beware of the temptation to feel and think that some kinds of people aren't needed in the church. He's warning us. The truth is, the members of the body which seem to be weaker, they aren't necessarily weaker, they just seem it to you, are indispensable. On the contrary, Paul says, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Not optional, but indispensable. Not merely helpful, but totally indispensable. Not maybe a needed part of the body, but completely indispensable to the body. We cannot do without them. Now, I want you to be honest who are the people that you think of as not needed? Now, just to worry, don't, don't point to them uh, or even look at them. Uh, keep it inward, keep it secret, just, just think. Who are the people you think of as not needed? Who are the people you reckon to be less important than you? Who are the people that you consider in some way weaker than you? These are the people that Paul says are indispensable to the church. 
We mustn't miss the warning here. If we're to be the diverse community that God wants us to be, those kinds of attitudes will not do. We need to allow God to show us our own personal prejudice, and then we need to repent of it. In other words, we're not merely to feel sorry, we're to turn from it. We're to have nothing more to do with such feelings. We just can't say to others or even secretly think of others, I don't need you. Such feelings, such attitudes have no place in God's body. But Paul doesn't stop there. You see, it's not enough just to say, well, this church needs everyone who comes along. From now on, I want this church to be made up of a whole load of people different to me. I, I want us to reflect the diversity that's found in this city. It sounds great, but that's not enough. Paul goes on to say that thinking it, saying it, even wholeheartedly believing it isn't enough. That's not good enough. Verse 23, the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. The truth is, those people who feel like they don't belong but those people who compare themselves with you and are left feeling useless, they're not going to change their view. They're not going to change what they believe if all you do is believe that they're welcome. Listen, for us as a church to say we welcome everyone without going out of our way to demonstrate that we do isn't actually going to include any more people. People who feel in the background, people who feel on the fringes, whether they're in a racial minority, a woman in a crowd of men, a single person among a bunch of couples, someone who serves quietly behind the scenes, or a Sunday morning visitor just walking into a room like this full of people they don't know. These people need to be given special honor, special treatment, special concern, so they're not tempted to conclude they don't belong think about it. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that how Jesus lived? He went to the home of tax collectors. He bent down and he touched lepers. He spoke with prostitutes. He sat down with people from different cultures. He didn't take the easy path of just mixing with people like him. He persisted with people who weren't easy to engage with. He kept going when there were awkward silences. He didn't give up on people who let him down repeatedly. He didn't avoid people who were deeply suspicious of him. He wasn't so locked into his busy schedule that he couldn't be flexible and drop in on people unannounced. He wasn't concerned about what other people might think of him. Jesus overcame every kind of social, racial, and cultural prejudice. And he calls us to do the same. He calls us to do the same. You see, the church is his body. We're to look like him, think like him, act like him. So it's not enough to simply build a church made up of people all from a similar background. It doesn't reflect the richness of who God himself is. 
And it fails to demonstrate the power of the gospel to break down divides. We're to display the manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God. It's what we're looking to do here. It's the kind of church we're believing we will be. But let's face it, it's not easy. It is fraught with problems. There'll be misunderstandings, innocent mistakes, suspicion, which is why I guess so many people opt for the easy route. In this city, there are black churches and white churches and Chinese churches and a whole load of middle-class churches and student churches. And it's like people segregate into groups of people like them. And yet, we need people with a heart for all of these different people. We need people with a heart for the marginalized, for the elderly, for the rich, for the poor, for people of different ethnic backgrounds, but not so they all form their own little Christian ghettos. Why aim for something less than God's intended design for the church? For the sake of His glory, let's work to bring a whole bunch of people together who naturally wouldn't relate with one another. That displays something far more effectively of the power of the gospel to break down divides, to to unite, to, to cause the thing to work in a way that naturally it never would. And so I want us to get very practical. Hopefully, God's challenging you. Hopefully, you're beginning to see how belief in God must lead to commitment to the church, and not just commitment to the church, but commitment to building the kind of church that God wants. Hopefully, you want to do something about this as well. But what? Where do you start? How should you go about applying all of this? I'm going to give you three suggestions to get you started before we finish. First of all, Relate on purpose to people who are different. Relate on purpose to people who are different. I know for sure that if I'm not intentional about reaching out to others who are different to me, I will just slip into my own private world of wealth, privilege, and upfront ministry. If I'm not careful, I can lose myself in the suburbs of my Christian faith and completely miss the people Jesus spent large swathes of his time mixing with. Let's face it, Jesus was very purposeful. He was incredibly intentional about not missing them, about not missing you and me. I mean, just think how far Jesus came to build a relationship with us. If we don't purpose, if we don't intentionally seek to relate to the kinds of people that, naturally speaking, we would easily ignore, we'll end up doing absolutely nothing. So, I want you to just think what steps you can take. Might affect your choice of seats on the bus or the train. Might affect who you make a beeline to after the meeting. Might affect who you invite into your home, who you drop in on, who you text. Think about it. What purposeful steps can you take? What purposeful steps will you take? Relate on purpose to people who are different. Second thing you can do is sit. Probably need to explain that. What what do I mean by this? Well, I mean, you're all doing great at it right now. Uh, Let me ask you, when was the last time 
you sat down with someone who wasn't in your family or in your circle of friends or one of your colleagues. When was the last time? If I'm being honest, I spend a good amount of time sitting with people who I like and who are like me. The rest of the time, I'm hurtling around from one urgent situation to the next. Time's pressured. It can feel like there's nowhere near enough time to get everything done. I'll tell you, in our fast-paced world, simply taking the time to sit with people sends a very powerful message. We're not looking to rush off and talk to someone more important. We're valuing them. We want to listen to what they have to say. They have our undivided attention. It's like we're on their level. According to Paul here, greater honour is to be given to those who lack it in our society. And sitting down and giving time is a great way of honouring people. The elderly, recovering addicts, the homeless, the hospitalised, those with learning difficulties. We're called to, to minister to those who are pushed by our society out into the margins, even if it doesn't fit neatly into our mix of gifts or our personality type. Ask questions that will help you understand their world. Ask what pressures they're facing. Ask how best you can help them, how best you can serve them, and learn from them. Be enriched by their experience of life. Taking the time to to sit and listen to others is a discipline at times, but it is is also a great, great privilege. Third thing you can do, pray. It's very easy, very practical way you can honour others. Praying for people who are underappreciated, undervalued, who feel like they're on the fringes, feel like they're different from you, is a great way to show you care. Let's face it, knowing that someone else is regularly praying for us can't help but encourage us. It makes us feel good. shows that people are concerned about us. Why not make it your habit to pray for people who are outside your circle of friends, people you don't know very well, people who would otherwise go unnoticed by you? Or, if you want to take this up another level, why don't you ask other people to pray for you? This demonstrates you need them. It shows you respect them enough to open up to them. You're you're making yourself vulnerable with them. How do we combat the kind of self-sufficiency that says, I don't need you? Relate on purpose with people who are different and be intentional about it. Sit with them, pray with them, invite them into your world. Now, when you walked in, you should have been given a piece of a jigsaw puzzle and you might have thought it was a bit odd what was going on. If you haven't just discarded it or lost it, I'd like you to get it out now and uh, hold it in your hand. Take a good look. Anyone got any ideas what the picture is? Any ideas? A grass verge? Yeah? A house? Sorry? Sorry? The Eden Project. (laughs) How do you get that from this? (laughs) Actually, uh, some of you are close. It probably does incorporate a grass verge and a cottage. It is actually a cottage in rural Jersey. Did did anyone get that? (laughs) No. You see, 
to see it, you need all of the pieces. Some of the pieces are small, some are big, some are corner pieces, some go around the edge, some fit on the inside, some are colour, some are varying shades of white or black, but they're all essential to completing the whole picture. And that is what it's like in this community that God is putting together here. We're all part of it. Each single piece is essential. I mean, have you ever tried doing a puzzle and finding at the end one piece is missing? I mean, how frustrating is that? Each piece is essential. It's no part that's expendable or dispensable. We're linked as one and we need one another. This morning, I've tried to paint a picture for you of what this looks like, what the big picture looks like. I want to urge you now to play your part, to add your piece to the puzzle so the whole world can see a picture of the church as God intends it to be.